This podcast is supported by IHI, also known as the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, who have been improving health and healthcare worldwide for 30 years. Improvement science is multidisciplinary and combines expert subject knowledge with improvement methods and tools. It emphasizes innovation, rapid cycle testing in the field, and spread in order to generate learnings about what changes and in which contexts to produce improvements. IHI's free Quality Improvement Essentials Toolkit is the must-have tool for any quality improvement project. Download the toolkit by visiting IHI.org. While you're there, check out the many other tools and free resources available from IHI, including QI tools, health equity reports, and patient safety tools, to name a few. That's IHI.org. Check it out today. Welcome to Care Talk, your weekly home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. David, who do we have as our victim this week? Well, John, you're our victim this week, but we have a star player this week named Juan Enriquez. He is an academic, a businessman, and a speaker. And we certainly need a speaker uh, here, John, since you and I are both a little tickled with the tongue. So, uh, he's a leading authority on many things, and in particular, the economic and political impact of the life sciences, which is something that we are not expert on, even though we talk about it. Welcome, Juan. Welcome, Juan. So, Juan, how did you get interested in kind of biotech and life sciences? So, I had a, uh, a very strange career. I grew up in Mexico. I thought I'd always live in Mexico. I was interested in politics and government. Um, and then had all kinds of adventures, ended up exiled out of Mexico, um, for trying to reform democracy and, uh, started trying to figure out why countries appear and disappear. And the answer had to do with the ability to adapt to new technologies. And at that point, the new technology that was sort of bright and shiny was something called genomics, but it was the early nineties. So I could read the whole field. And what, and since that period, I mean, you, you could argue that the life sciences have kind of saved the world with the, the vaccines. Um, you could also argue that they've, they've almost priced themselves out of the, uh, out, uh, out of reach for most of the world. What's your observation now of, of its, of its promise and its performance? So, you know, I think the topic of healthcare is absolutely fundamental to the future of the U.S. economy because, you know, it's close to, it's approaching one-fifth of the entire economy. It's not getting faster, better, cheaper, and the outcomes in terms of quality of life and disability life years is nowhere near as good as the other OECD countries. So basically what you're doing is you're putting a 5 to 10% tax extra per output on almost anything produced in the U.S. So when we talk about, you know, technology getting faster, better, cheaper, there's some things that seem to be getting better, perhaps, on, on healthcare technology, but faster and cheaper does not seem to be the case, at least in, in the U.S. Is there any particular reason for that? Well, better, you know, per dollar spent and per lifespan, the U.S. is not at the top of the charts in terms of OECD lifespans, and it's not at the top in terms of healthy life. Um, so I, 
I would say better if you have an obscure disease, if you've got an orphan disease, if you need a very highly specialized treatment. Yeah, you can get some of the best care on the planet um, in the U.S., but in general, per dollar spent, it ain't faster, better, or cheaper. Um, there is a turning point, which is a really interesting turning point, which we may or may not be approaching, where the art of medicine starts turning into the science of medicine. And in the measure that you can have medicine that looks more like theoretical physics, where you predict what's going to be the outcome of the experiment, then there is a possibility of getting on a faster, better, cheaper course in the measure that you start having electroceutical treatments instead of chemical treatments, then there is a possibility that you do faster, better, cheaper. In the measure that you decentralize treatments, are able to print your own medicines, are able to repurpose consumer-grade um, brain-machine interfaces towards treatment then possibly you get faster, better, cheaper, but we're just not there yet. But I don't know whether politically, Juan, the cartels that represent the rent seekers in healthcare are ever going to give up their strong positions. I mean, I, I where I was going with the, the you know, farm, farm, pharma, big pharma, small pharma, life sciences pharma, there's all kinds of examples of bad behavior, anti-competitive behavior, excess pricing, and more of an investment in protecting protectionist policies than actual R&D at a time when there's never been more exciting opportunities to literally do things like cure cancer. We've got really, there's a tremendous amount of scientific and, and, and medical creativity and tailwind, but no real uh, pricing pressure to alleviate, uh, you know, the excess tax that uh, high prices, particularly in the U.S., are, are sort of creating for that, that, that eventually insinuate themselves into every, every, as you, to your point, everything that's produced in America, every hour of labor that where, that, that where there's any health insurance. Um, how do you, how do you square that? Because we we have, we are at the cusp of a, of an extraordinary, almost an accelerating series of, uh, of, of innovations, but the, the, but with, with absolutely no price pressure. So I think you're absolutely right. And one of the most fascinating recent examples is the COVID vaccine. So between the time that they had the sequence and the time that they designed a vaccine against COVID, it, it took maybe a couple of hours, like literally a few hours. Um, and then all of the rest was scaling up the manufacturing and going through immense regulatory hurdles without a challenge trial during a time when close to American, a million Americans were going to die. And, you know, one of the tragedies of medicine today is that we don't measure the cost of not acting. So we certainly measure, you know, this medicine hurt 20 people and benefited 10,000. Um, but we never measure the cost of having statins in the United States much later than Europe. And if you believe that statins save lives, then the period of time between the time that the statins were approved in Europe and here is the period of time where you kill people for not acting faster. And, and this applies to university IRBs. This applies to regulatory agencies. This applies to 
the pharma, and, and part of the problem is the, the incentives are so ass backwards. So let's imagine for a second that you have two people sitting outside a big pharma CEO office. And one person has a life-saving antibiotic. It's cheap. You take it for seven days, and you're cured, and you don't come back. And the other person has a cancer medication that costs, you know, a million bucks a year that you have to continuously take that is only going to expand your life for a few months or a few years. So the current economic incentive system is to go for the second, even though the first one in societal terms is far more valuable to the people in the society, far more effective for government spending, and far more effective a medicine. And when you, when you look at what we could do with preventive medicine, what we could do with antibiotics, what we could do with basic nutrition, what we could do with um, just antiseptics and, and just general preventive care, you, you really could increase lifespan and quality of life in a very substantial way if that was your focus. But instead, we tend to focus on more and more expensive drugs for fewer and fewer people, create vouchers for obscure drugs for small groups of people. And if you're part of that small group, you're very happy you live here if you've got insurance. But as a whole society, we're, we're all paying a whole lot more than other people are paying for a whole lot less of an outcome. But I mean, certainly the Operation Warp Speed uh, focused on something that was hitting everybody and the government paid for it and got pretty quickly uh, to people in the, in the U.S. compared with um, elsewhere. Has that changed the, uh, the equation or made people realize, hey, maybe, maybe we actually want to focus on these broadly based uh, issues as opposed to the, you know, the orphan drugs? I hope so. Um, you know, we almost put all the vaccine companies out of business. They came very close to going out of business, and, and there's very few things that are more effective than a vaccine per dollar spent. It's crazy to me that we had FDA-approved vaccines against Lyme disease, and the anti-vaxxers and the liability were so high that those vaccines were pulled. So you're now in a situation where you can go to Martha's Vineyard or Connecticut or Maine, and vaccinate your dog against Lyme disease, but you can't vaccinate your kid. And you've got more and more people with a nasty chronic disease that's going to affect them for a long time because we're not good at the preventive part, um, because we're very good at looking at the risks. We're very good at making a lot of lawyers rich off those risks, and we're not very good at protecting our own citizens. Juan, you, you gave a really provocative talk one time, which sort of suggested that the FDA approval process, just to pick one thing that could be improved, had basically created the reverse of Moore's Law in, in innovation in drugs and devices. Do you, you still hold to that, that we're kind of reversing the, the, the speed of innovation in medical technology through regulation? You know, when I gave that talk, it, it cost $100, $200 million to bring a drug to market, and it's now approaching a billion. 
So yeah, Moore's law is operating in reverse in this. And you know, there was a, I used as an illustration a an anecdote in DC, which was there used to be a time when people could still drive along the Beltway and actually move. Now it's a parking lot. And during that time, every morning in the same place, the damn Beltway backed up. And the traffic engineers just could not figure out why in the world is this thing backing up? And so they looked at this and they looked at that. And then finally, somebody wrote into the Washington Post and said, there's this one guy who gets on the Beltway. He goes to the far left-hand side. He goes 50 miles an hour and doesn't move. And people honk at him. People scream at him. He just backs everything up. Well, lo and behold, a few days later, in comes a letter to the Washington Post saying, my name is John Nestor. I'm the person who does it. I'm following the letter of the law. The speed limit is 50. If somebody else wants to speed, that's their problem. I'm going to follow the letter of the law. That led the good citizens of Washington, D.C. to invent a verb called nestering in honor of this gentleman. Now, guess where John Nestor worked? He actually worked at the FDA. And what the law says is you have to have a drug that's safe before you approve it. And guess what? No drug is safe. All drugs have long lists of interactions. So Nestor never approved a drug. And this got so ridiculous that finally he was fired. Ralph Nader sued for his reinstatement, arguing he's just following the letter of the law. He did his entire career at the FDA and never approved a single drug, but blocked everything that came to his desk. And ironically, at one point, he was in charge of the renal division, and he died of kidney failure. So he could have actually approved a drug that may have saved him. Well, that's right. I'm not sure where John's going to go with that one. I remember the, I think the, uh, the Maryland uh, police copied that one. Instead of taking up one lane, they'd actually went across the whole, the whole beltway and, uh, and made sure people were going at that, at that slow pace. I think the Lyme disease is really an instructive one and maybe tells us where we are in terms of a turning point, because I was hopeful that maybe once the uh, COVID vaccine came out, that people would be, okay, excited about vaccines and then, those that were sort of against, uh, you know, some of the childhood vaccines because they didn't remember what it was like to have terrible childhood diseases would re-engage with them. It seems like we may be going the other direction with that way, whereas I, I had Lyme disease. I had actually had the classic symptoms and caught it right away and didn't have problems, but that could easily have not have happened and I could get it again. So I've actually been hoping for a Lyme disease vaccine as well. Do you think, are you optimistic, pessimistic? I mean, where could, where could it go and can we influence it? So I think what's fascinating about today's medical system is the prices and the output are so completely out of whack that if I were advising the Canadian government or if I were advising the Mexican government or if I were advising the Taiwanese government or, you know, name a place that has a decent pharma structure, I would look at the case study of taxi cabs and Ubers. I mean, coming back to Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. had a notoriously bad taxi service called Barwood. And you just never knew if you could possibly get a cab. And if they didn't show up, they said, well, sorry, we didn't show up. And getting a medallion in New York City was so expensive that nobody could afford them. And so you, you end up with these systems where the regulation and the practice drives the delivery to the customer so far out of whack that another country can come in and say, you know what, come across the border and we'll give you a Lyme disease vaccine. 
or come across the border and we will give you a better COVID vaccine for the new variant or come across and do X, Y, or Z. And in the measure that those are reasonably priced options, then a lot of people are going to be willing to pay out of pocket. Um, you, you see it with things like plastic surgery, right? You see it with some fertility treatments where people will really spend a lot of money for specific procedures or specific treatments as long as they think they are effective. And there is such a gap between the cost of a really great LASIK surgery in India and the United States or the cost of a hip replacement in India and the United States with U.S. trained doctors that a lot of people are taking, you know, a business class trip over there enjoying India. And, and I think you're going to see more and more of that medical tourism and you will soon see pharmaceutical tourism. Because if you don't develop the vaccines here, you know, if I were, there's a spectacular book by David Halberstam called The Reckoning as to how the Asians took out the largest, most powerful industry in the world, which was the U.S. auto industry. And it was basically, they were building really bad things in Detroit with planned obsolescence. And to my mind, a lot of the pharma industry and the medical industry feels like that. I don't know whether you saw one, but there is actually a new PBM that uh, pharmacy benefits manager that is for mid-tier employers. And one of its angles is it's buying drugs from Canada and just reselling them here because it turns out in certain states that's quite legal. And uh, you're, you're starting to even see it you know, sort of emerge in, in, in fits and spurts just because the dislocation, the, the, the price disparity is, 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 is humongous. I mean, they're, they're, and it's for the same chemical compound, the same biologic. And I think that, I think you're absolutely right. I guess, are there, are there, are there other ways that we could structurally improve the incentives to, to sort of tie more outcomes or price sanity to a system where pricing has really gotten just completely detached from either the cost of production or research or, or outcome. So I, I've always been a fan of zero-based budgeting. And, you know, you can say, hey, um, we as a society are willing to spend 15% of GDP for healthcare, or we're willing to spend 19%, whatever the number is, and, and then adopt something that the Brits have actually gotten very good at, which is daily, disability life years. So... If I treat a child for an earache with an antibiotic, that has huge disability life years. If I treat a child for basic vaccines when they're born, just diphtheria, tetanus, the rest of the stuff, huge disability life years, very low cost, huge outcome. If I treat, you know, a smoker with a second kidney transplant um, or a second lung transplant, the disability life years are minimal at a huge cost. And, you know, one of the ways that I think about how we budget healthcare in the United States is I think if we treated education the same way, you would basically tell kids, we are not going to pay for your grammar school. We're not going to pay for your high school. We're not going to pay for your college. We're not going to pay for your graduate school. However, if you reach age 65, you can take any course at any school at any price, regardless of outcome. 
And, and it's just such an insane system, right? Because what, what you need to do is you need to fund the stuff that provides the longest high quality of life first. And if you've got money left over, then, you know, maybe you do the second lung transplant if you're willing to tax a society to that level. What you shouldn't be doing is you shouldn't be putting huge debts on future generations because you want to maintain a crazy system that makes you an ATM for a hospital at the very end of life. Right? Most of your medical spending is doctor do everything possible, and oh, by the way, most doctors have directives that specifically mandate against doing a lot of the things that we are doing to our elderly. We, we wouldn't treat our dogs in the way that we treat some of our elderly. Right? You, it's okay if you live in pain for extraordinary periods of time. It's okay if you live in you know, a horrendous, intubated, brain-dead position for a long period of time. You, you wouldn't dream of treating your so cat on, that how, way or your how dog does, that how does How does the UK get, a, get, get apply that concept in real life? Is it because the NHS gets to make centralized decisions and we've distributed decision-making and as a result, we don't have any? Yes, and, and I want to be very specific. There are huge problems with the NHS in terms of delivery of services. And, and I think when you look at these systems, you've got to look partly at what Canada does, partly at what Sweden does, partly at what the UK does, and mix and match to create a best-in-class system. But what the UK does specifically when it approves a new medicine and looks at the price of a new medicine is it says how many good years of quality of life will this medicine, this operation, this implant, this medical device provide? And, and that's what the decision's based on. So, Juan, it's been, I always love uh, watching your talks when you talk about uh, technology and saying, like, where does it, where does it go from here and the long-run uh, impacts? There was one that I went back to from a little while ago where you talked about the age of genetic wonder, and there was something that I picked up on that I thought would be useful for now. I just wanted to get an update on it, where you, you were talking about being on track for close to carbon neutral fuels by 2025, which I think could impact probably some of the things that are going on in, in Europe at the moment, if that were coming to, to bear. How, how are we doing on the, on the fuel side of things? So, you know, it's a race between fuels, and it's a great race, because there are places where it's going to be very hard to substitute liquid fuels. For the rest of it, the price of solar, wind, and geothermal is dropping so fast that pretty soon it's not going to make sense to burn coal. In fact, it doesn't in most places today, uh, unsubsidized coal. It doesn't make sense in a bunch of places like the Alberta tar sands to generate fuel. There will be a point where you will get to a price point where it is cheaper to use solar or geothermal or wind than even Saudi crude. And that's not that far off. And, and then you still have places where the energy density of liquids is such that it makes it impossible to fly a plane with batteries, or it may make more sense on heavy transport ship to use fuels. And there you do have to have carbon neutral fuels, and the way you do that is you have cells that you program to basically generate fuel. 
And, and that sounds like science fiction until you understand what gasoline or oil is. So, so in essence, if you think of a palm tree, a palm tree is a whole series of solar panels that are hit by photons from the sun. And that same energy from the sun that warms or burns your skin powers the palm tree. It allows it to grow. It allows it to, you know, bring up juices, grow bark, grow wood. When you rot that under pressure for a million years, you get a rotten soup of vegetables and plants and trees and bogs, and that's called oil. And you refine that, and that becomes gasoline. So it's sunlight stored in organic matter that generates oil and gasoline. And what we're trying to do with these fuels is to go short-circuit that cycle and go direct sunlight to cell and make that cell a factory for the fuel without the intermediate one million years of cooking under pressure. We're getting to the point where we could see a commercial facility beginning to be deployed by 2025-26 on a pilot basis. We are already flying some planes using you know, discarded cooking oil, but that's very hard to scale. Um, and we should see we, we should see some of these fuels coming online, especially with today's price of oil and some of today's subsidies. Well, and also the geopolitical implications of being dependent on it. I mean, have never been so stark as, as, as I think this war is pointing out, which is really it, the, the, this, the, the, you know, the geopolitical thugs have often you know, been fueled by oil. I mean, they're, 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 yep. There's a, but I'm surprised you didn't bring up the 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 the, the emerging technologies in nuclear uh, that 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 appear to be a lot safer, um, a, a lot more productive, and, and and relatively quick. I mean, those technologies are available today, and or the possibility of hydrogen. I mean, it just feels like uh, solar, uh, wind, geothermal. Those are still partial solutions, but if you were to add a couple of other components, you might have, you know, a full stack. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and especially if you're going to start traveling long distances in space, or you're going to have to power moon bases or other things, um, nuclear has to be a component of that. The other thing that's happening is you're, you're beginning to develop these pocket nukes yes. that you can bury and they're much smaller scale, and they're not subject to the same kind of blow-up and Chernobylization of something. Um, in the measures that those work, again, they're competing against a very fast dropping cost of solar. And, and the thing you haven't seen in nuclear is you haven't seen the same kind of faster, better, cheaper curve. You, you could see it. Right? There's no reason why those pocket nukes couldn't go faster, better, cheaper. But again, it gets into a very nasty regulatory realm yeah. that has ratcheted several levels that you have to de-ratchet while maintaining safety. Hey, John, do I have time for one more question? You, you do. So another thing that you, that you uh, talked about in the same talk about the age of genetic wonder is about the age of the genome merging into the age of the brain. How, how, how mm -hmm. will that be working out? So I tend to be a little restless, so I switch careers every decade or two. I think you switch careers actually more frequently than that. <laughs> Just not – as long as he doesn't do it, do it during our show, John, we're okay. Okay. 
There we go. So, you know, I got to the point in genomics where once I saw what they were doing with stem cells and once I saw what they were doing with being able to make full genomes and with the reproduction of tissues, I became pretty convinced that it's only a matter of time before we're able to reproduce our eyes, our teeth, our stomachs, our lungs. So in essence, we're going to know how to program cells to make another knee because we've already done it twice or another kidney because we've already done it twice. So the program is there. And it's a question of how do you execute that program? And, and we're already doing it with bladders. We're already doing it with tracheas. We're already doing it with skin, right? And, and we'll get to the complex organs. And the reason why the brain then becomes a critical component is until you can regrow a brain and download the information into the brain, longevity has a limit of 120, 130 years. All these people who are giving you snake oil about how we're going to live forever, et cetera, it doesn't work until you have a downloadable brain. And that's a big, bloody challenge, right? So if you want human beings to actually live two, 300, 500 years, you, you have to understand the brain, and that's something that's going to take us a century or two to be able to do. So all these folks who are telling you, you know, 160-year lifespan, nah -uh. Not, not until you solve the brain issue. And that's, that's why it's so interesting. Well, good. I guess the thing is when we live even 160 years, never mind 500, we'll have plenty of time to listen to Cure Talk episodes. But I think for now, we're going to say thank you, Juan Enriquez, academic businessman, speaker, and career changer. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics One. Thank you so much for joining us and, 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 and the, the age of wonder of, uh, of, of, of science and the aid and, and, the, and the painful reality of healthcare costs uh, bringing us back to earth. But uh, thanks for joining us today.